Indian Summer Festival's podcast series was recorded at Tiffin Talks, our lunchtime idea series featuring a diverse group of thinkers, artists, and innovators. Tiffin Talks gathers people to share ideas and a meal together, turning strangers into friends. I'm Sirish Rao, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of the Indian Summer Festival, and we're glad to share this talk with you. Tiffin Talks at ISF 2018 was supported by Van City. Special thanks to our major partners, Simon Fraser University, Langara College and Creative BC, and our media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio. Our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, British Columbia Arts Council and Business for the Arts. This episode is titled New Museology. The Indian photographer Danita Singh's project Museum Bhavan helps us to reimagine what a museum is. We are joined by four brilliant cultural producers who are engaging, disrupting and rearranging in varying and strategic ways the role of museums in contemporary society. Laura June moderates New Museology featuring Shaheen Nanji, Jordan Wilson, Marika Ichachis Swan and Amar Mahimwala. My name is Laura June Albert and I am the Community Engagement Manager with Indian Summer Festival. We're in day seven of our 11 day long festival and we're so happy to have you with us here today. One of the projects that Indian Summer Festival has taken on this year is presenting the work of an artist, Dianita Singh. Dianita Singh is a Delhi-born contemporary visual artist whose work has been presented at the MoMA, at the Tate Modern, at the Venice Biennale, the Coche Biennale. And her, one of her recent projects is called Museum Bhavan, which takes uh, the concept of the museum and rearranges it, turns it inside out, thinks about public space, thinks about what is the role of the museum, of keeping ideas or memories um, behind glass. Whose ideas? Whose memories? Who are these memories being oriented towards? Who are we offering these memories to? And how are they being presented? Whose jurisdiction is it to present them in such a way? Um, Indian Summer Festival has purchased nine of her booklets, Museum Bhavan booklets, and there's one that we, uh, we've been gifting them to various artists in Vancouver and asking them to present them in public space. One of those artists is Deborah Sparrow, and she chose to present the Museum Bhavan here in Sanok, inside Paws, and so it's just on the other side of this bench here. Take a look, check it out. Um, there's a bit of write-up about it as well. And so that project is really what initiated the idea around this panel of brilliant thinkers that we've gotten here together. So I won't speak much longer. I'm just going to introduce these artists and they'll each speak. And then we're going to break for lunch. And lunch will be at this table. The artists are going to come through the table and sit with you. And the idea is that the conversation continues over lunch. So please continue to digest these ideas, think about these ideas, think about what it means to you to be engaged with art in public space, in private space, um, and let's keep the conversation going. So first up, I am so grateful to introduce Jordan Wilson. Jordan Wilson is a curator and a writer. He's currently working with the Morris and Helen Belkin Art Gallery. He's a member of the Musqueam First Nation, whose land we're now on. Jordan was a co-curator of the exhibit Cessnam, The City Before the City in 2015, and In a Different Light, reflecting on Northwest Coast art in 2017. I'm sure that many of us here have interacted with both of those exhibits. This coming fall, he will begin his PhD in anthropology at NYU, Jordan Wilson. Hello. Am I close talking enough? Okay. 
Um, so thanks for being here and thanks for having me uh, here today. I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, seven minutes is not a whole lot of time for me to address what I think is a, a very large topic, so bear with me as I try to be as concise as possible. As a member of the Musqueam Nation, my comments here today come from a position that is mainly concerned uh, with indigenous peoples and the relationship our peoples have with museums and their practices. I want to provide a disclaimer, however, that my views are my own and rooted in my own uh, career experiences, and I, I do not seek to represent my community. As Laura mentioned in my introduction, my background and interests lie in anthropology um, as well as indigenous studies. I fell into museum work almost 10 years ago as an undergraduate student who, like most arts undergrads, had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I'm still figuring that out. Um, but at that time, and, and still today, I was interested in community-based research and finding ways for my academic pursuits to be useful for my community and other communities. And working in a museum context, and at that time I, start, I had started a summer position at the Museum of Anthropology at UBC, um, exposed me to uh, museum practices. And uh, for me, it was fulfilling a desire to learn more about historical and contemporary indigenous cultural practices uh, of my community as well as other Coast Salish communities um, while working with Musqueam and helping serve Musqueam and our neighboring communities. I ended up majoring in Indigenous Studies, which as I understand it is an interdisciplinary project that is committed to Indigenous sovereignty and to making a contribution to the well-being of Indigenous nations. Um, it's a project that's concerned with decolonization. And this is the crux of the matter when I think of uh, new, mu new museology. <laughs> Um, for me, anyway, it's about putting the methods and ethics of indigenous studies into conversation with museum practice. It's about thinking how museums can better respond to the needs and desires of indigenous peoples today. Um, one of the most rewarding and meaningful experiences I've had is working on a project called Cessnam the City Before the City, which Laura June mentioned. I think this project is a useful example for thinking about the directions museums are taking. For me, it's difficult to capture this experience and what the project entailed in a short time, but in essence, it was the result of Musqueam collaborating with the Museum of Vancouver, the, U the UBC Museum of Anthropology, uh, to produce three exhibitions which opened simultaneously in early 2015 at these two museums, as well as at the Musqueam Cultural Center on the Reserve. The exhibitions address the history and contemporary status of Cessnam, one of our ancient villages and cemeteries, while also speaking to who we are as a community. The exhibitions underscored our connection to our traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory. Cessnam, commonly known as the Marple Midden, has been heavily excavated and interpreted over the past 100 plus years, resulting in massive museum collections, as well as misinformation about those collections and the history of this place and who we are. As historian Susan Roy has demonstrated in her book, These Mysterious People, the treatment of Cessnam, including the mu museological collection and display, was tightly connected to a larger colonial project of displacement. The Museum of Vancouver's predecessor, the Centennial Museum, was part of this activity. 
from Musqueam, this series of exhibitions was a means to write history as in R-I-G-H-T, as my uncle Larry Grant has said, and to tell our story in our own way. It was Musqueam using these institutions as a platform to share what we felt was appropriate to share. The project involved a curatorial team of Musqueam and non-Musqueam individuals, and crucially, uh, from my perspective, an advisory group of respected Musqueam elders and community leaders who effectively steered the project. For me, as a young community member, it was incredibly rewarding to spend hours listening to these individuals share their knowledge and teachings and their lived experiences. It was also a privilege to interview and learn from many other community members whose voices comprised the bulk of the exhibitions, resulting in a multivocal approach, as Marika reminded me earlier, uh, that really countered the typical um, uh, singular voice that museums often present. Musqueam community members were involved in all decision-making throughout the project. So here, collaboration was not a checkbox at one step along the way. Rather, it informed the entire process from its overall goals and exhibition strategies to marketing, education, programming, design, and so forth. Um, so all the realms of museum practice. We employed quite a few different strategies in our exhibit-making approach, including a conscious use of specific terminology, such as belongings instead of artifact or object, village instead of midden, and so on. The exhibitions have been successful, garnering much interest. The project won several awards. And while this recognition has been satisfying, it's much more rewarding to know that Musqueam has shared its own history on its own terms, and knowing that, and knowing that the success would not have been possible without the generosity, knowledge, and perspectives of all the Musqueam community members involved. I do feel that the exhibitions, as well as the resulting documentary, uh, have made a difference, particularly in how Vancouverites understand the, the land they live and work on. I see the exhibitions as having a political effect, playing a role in shifting discourse established by the archaeological and museum practices of the late 19th and early to mid 20th century. And this is where I'll insert my promotional plug that uh, one, uh, two of the renditions of this exhibition are still accessible at the Museum of Vancouver and at the Musqueam Cultural Center, and that the documentary uh, that stemmed from this project is available for viewing on the Knowledge Network website. But before I conclude, I want to widen my scope here and talk in a bit more general terms. So I'm aware I just, while I'm aware I just spoke about a temporary exhibition project, I do feel that discussions of museum practice in relation to indigenous peoples has often revolved around curatorial practice and the care or return of museum collections. Less attention has been paid, however, to institutional management and leadership and the policies under which museums are governed. Furthermore, I feel that more attention can be paid to the staffing of such institutions, which in my experiences are predominantly white and non-indigenous. I'm also concerned with accountability and power dynamics when it comes to museums and their relationships with indigenous peoples. I'm curious how museums and other arts institutions can be accountable to their histories, the collections and legacies they've inherited, the land they occupy, and the communities they are complicit in displacing. I think the answers to these questions vary from institution to institution and might not just relate to museums that have inherited collections related to art, uh, anthropological and archaeological practice, but also 
uh, what we s understand to be contemporary art galleries typically I think assumed to be uh, neutral spaces but they I think I think they are also uh, very much complicit in a larger system and my question too is how can indigenous people benefit from museums and their activities given that I'm short on time I just want to note that there there are many place, places or ways an institution can start this work, and many institutions have begun this work. But I still think that there are other institutions and organizations who see working with indigenous peoples as a checkbox uh, without understanding that it sh should be a commitment to building better relationships and a better world. Um, I keep returning to the ideas expressed in an article by Tlingit scholar Eve Tuck and K. Wayne Yang, decolonization is not a metaphor, which expresses precisely that, that decolonization is not something that can be uh, diluted into anything other than the return of land uh, to indigenous communities. So I wonder how museums can play a role uh, in doing that work. And that's where I'll stop. Thank you. I have no doubt that um, many of us, that's such a rich opener to the conversation. And I have no doubt that many of us have a lot of thoughts coming. So just take a moment, gather those thoughts, remember them, bring them up in the conversation that we'll have shortly. Next up, I'd like to introduce Amar Mahimwala. Amar is a dear friend of mine. We've been working together for the last three years in collaboration between Indian Summer Festival and his organization, the Vancouver Biennale. Amar is the Director of Public Projects at the Vancouver Biennale, which is an organization that directs the Vancouver Open Air Museum project, bringing art into public space. Prior to this, he worked with the Guggenheim in Mumbai, as well as with the Dr. Pau Daji Lad Museum in Mumbai. Amar has been instrumental in bringing this art piece that you can just see over the hill here. That art piece is by a Saudi Arabian artist named Ajlan Garam, and it is called Paradise Has Many Gates. After this uh, lunch today, if you have time, I encourage you to walk over and check out that art piece. But in the meantime, please welcome Amar Mahimwala. Thank you, Laura and Suresh. It's been a pleasure collaborating and working together with the Indian Summer Festival. And this event is, is true testimony of how arts and culture groups in the city can really share and collaborate. My background really is in anthropology and humanities. And going back to, to Mumbai, I'm from Mumbai originally. And so a settler on unknown lands, going back and working in, in a museum context over there is very different. And I really understand where Dayanita Singh's Museum Bhavan project comes from because Museums in South Asia are really a colonial project where the collections were based around empirical documentation, you know, to, to document, to objectify, to quantify, to rationalize, and to categorize the indigenous populations. And the museum that I worked at was actually formerly known as the Victoria and Albert Museum, as a sister institution of the one founded in London. But part of the decolonizing process was the name was restored to a native who was actually instrumental in founding the museum and who got recognition posthumously. Part of the restoration project at the museum actually involved um, reinterpreting the collection and so contemporizing it because the museum was sort of run down where 
most museums, most people actually don't like going into museums. There's lots of cultural, institutional, educational barriers. And part of our project was really opening up the museum and creating, using it at the, and the collection as a community space. So the project with the Guggenheim also involved setting up satellite exhibitions around the city and connecting the population to sort of these objects and artifacts and, and really bringing them into the contemporary times and their relevance. And using contemporary art as this way to continue this dialogue with the past and, and continuing this narrative of learning and sharing from the past. When I moved back to Vancouver, I, I had this opportunity to work with the Vancouver Biennale for the past five years. And I'll tell you a bit about the Biennale and, and my work in Vancouver, actually. So as director of public projects, I look after the large-scale installations all across Metro Vancouver. And the Vancouver Biennale is a nonprofit charitable organization. Our mandate is really to celebrate public art and use it as a catalyst for learning, community engagement, and social action. Our exhibitions are very unique in the world of contemporary art and biennales in that we feature large-scale outdoor installations. Vancouver is a very outdoor, lifestyle-oriented city, and, and that's where we decided to exhibit the work where people live, work, play, and transit. So again, removing the white walls and the barriers, and that's what I really would like to speak about, is taking away the context and the safe space of museums and institutions and putting the work out there where the public can interact and engage, where there's do not touch signs and you know there's no fees or entrance barriers to anyone engaging with the works. And all of our works are actually located in sort of high visibility, very accessible locations, which is another very Vancouver unique thing. I was in Toronto last week and I noticed the lack of, of public transportation infrastructure, bike lanes, you know, the subway system. And in Vancouver we actually enjoy public transportation, so all of our works are easily accessible. And we actually have a map online on our website, so if anyone would like to visit all of the works, you can take an online tour. We're actually in the process of the launching the 2018-2020 exhibition right now, and Paradise Has Many Gates, the work just across the hill over there by Ajlan Garim, a young Saudi Arabian artist, is one of our featured works, and there'll be a whole series of them over this summer. I think placing Artworks in public space really takes it out of the context and out of the hands of the artist as well, which is something very important, where in a museum or an institutional context, you can control the environment, you can control the context, you can control the way a viewer perceives and approaches an artwork. Once it's in the public domain, it really is open to interpretation. And that's the beauty and joy of public art for me personally, is that everybody comes at the work with their own unique lens, whether it's cultural, socioeconomic, gender, or a variety of other issues. And our, our whole objective is really to open up this dialogue and bringing artists and artworks from across the world. We really have this unique opportunity to share what separates us, but also the things that bring us together culturally. I'll just talk about some of our artworks and actually have some photographs out on the table for, for those of you not familiar with some of these works I'll be talking about. So one of them is actually called Giants by Os Gemios, which is two Brazilian twin brothers, and they're street artists from Sao Paulo. We created the largest mural of a kind in the 2014-2016 exhibition down on Granville Island at Ocean Concrete. And what's really unique about this project is that it's a functioning concrete plant, and we turned it into one of the largest canvases or murals in the world. And these artists, where they come from, again, is, is sort of a very street hip-hop urban culture but their art form has been elevated now to the fine art world, and their work is collected by museums and galleries across the world. But for them, the, the genre and the sort of street art graffiti form really speaks to their roots and to their identity and their culture. 
And by putting it out there in sort of public space, it creates, it creates this unique destination on Granville Island, which is a very artistic community. Another one of the works that was part of the previous exhibition is an LED sign um, on Point Grey Road by a Brazilian artist, Joao Lerero, called Vancouver Novel. And it's, when you approach it, it's a simple LED sign with 26 changing sentences, phrases. That's really, the artist has created a narrative about the family that's living inside the house. And there are common everyday phrases such as they're doing the dishes or they're not speaking anymore. And what's really interesting about the work is that placed in this public-private boundary, the work really questions our engagement with social media. And you know, one of the conversations I had with him was that everyone's obsessed with sharing everything about themselves in this digital era, what we're eating, what we're wearing, where we're going, who we're meeting with, who we're connecting with. And yet we have this strong sense of privacy at the same time as we're disseminating this information to the world and people are using it or sharing it or reposting it. And this work situated outside a house really, I've heard from the owners of the house that you get a lot of people just walking in and saying, what's the story? Is there more artworks inside? You know, so it's really breaking out these barriers. And Vancouver, again, we talk about housing typologies and, and architecture and urban infrastructure, where hedges is such a British thing that we experience in single-family homes across the city. And located in front of a hedge, this work really questions this divide that we've created between streets, bike lanes, public space, and our own private homes. Another one of the works is, um, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with, is Trans Am Totem, which is a large sculpture by Science World five cars stacked on top of an old growth cedar, and that's by a local artist, Marcus Bocott. And that work really speaks to Vancouver as a very unique city in the world of urban planning and culture where we went away from the way of um, large highways and, and motorways and the viaducts that were built behind it, behind the artwork, actually were sort of the entrance to the freeway that never got realized and built. And Vancouver took on a very different direction from all other North American cities in public transportation and urban infrastructure. And we really shared bike lanes and public transportation. And this, this sculpture really speaks to the role of cars in our culture. And we don't really recognize that where the artist was telling me that we really build our cities for cars, not for people. You know, we build parking lots first, we build garages first, and then we really build homes or towers. And so he's questioning the role of cars in our culture. And these are, these are just some of, sort of the anecdotal stories about how public art really gets to question our identity and, and sort of our role, and it really transforms the urban landscape where we want people to have a new experience or have, think about something different that you wouldn't normally in your everyday lives. So I encourage you when you come across a work of public art to stop for 10 seconds and, and think about how this work really reflects or gets you to question something that we take for granted in our everyday lives. Thank you so much, Amar. I feel this too. Often, so often, when I see the different behavior when art is in public space, uh, the way that people walk just right past it, as compared to art that is being presented inside a gallery or a museum, and I, I often wish, as I as I see people sort of blast past public art, I wish that people would linger and get a taste of that art. So please do consider that as you move through the city. Shaheen Nanji is the Director of International Community Engagement at SFU. Her training in international development has taken her to many places internationally, 
working in themes of education, diaspora, refugee and newcomer work, diversity, public health, environmental policy. Through this work, Shaheen thinks a great deal about public engagement and dialogue on global issues. She's currently collaborating with the Museum of Vancouver on a project to educate refugee and newcomer immigrant people to this place. And in, in that work and in that mention, I'd like to also um, thank the Museum of Vancouver. They've been collaborating with us at Indian Summer Festival this year on a great deal of events. Um, so I'll now pass this over Shaheen Nanji. Thanks very much. So I'd also like to uh, thank the Museum of Vancouver and especially Mauro, who, who wrote me into doing this, this uh, talk. But I am honestly grateful for this opportunity. So I was asked to speak today about how I see the unique uh, potential of museums to provide newcomers access to information about and to exchange with Canada's indigenous people and its history. And this is really the start of a, a personal and professional exploration on my part, so I hope you'll forgive any transgressions. I'm really just exploring here. But before I get started, I'd like to tell you about a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago um, at a dinner um, where I met two patient and very wise Musqueam women who were generous enough with their time and their wisdom to... Um, to answer my questions as I, as I try to better understand um, Canada's indigenous history. And at one point I used that word indigenous and, and one of the women said to me, I don't like that word. I, uh, so I said, well, uh, what, what would you prefer to be called? And she said, I'm Indian. As long as there's an Indian act, I'm Indian. Later in the evening, a couple of glasses of wine in and um, you know we started talking about my identity and and my my experience of being here as a newcomer and um, and and at that point I told her that um, that I just like being called East Indian and and what I would like to be called is Indian and I said I'm Indian there isn't a country called East India I don't come from the east of India there aren't two Indias I'm Indian <laughs> So shared, shared struggle, shared labors, and a new sharing of history. That's really what this is about. So how did I come to this point, both in my life and literally on this point, this piece of land that used to be a, a village called Sanak, um, that we sit on today and that's so laden with its colonial history? As an immigrant to this unceded territory, I knew very little about Canada's Aboriginal people when I arrived having been educated in the British colonial system um, in Kenya, most of what I learned um, was a sound basis for the negative stereotypes that were pervasive when I moved here in 1989. When I asked about Canada's Aboriginal history, most people only knew the very superficial and mostly derogatory stories about the Indians that they had in turn heard from others. And over the years, I've tried to learn more as I tried to become Canadian um, but it's not been without struggle for me to feel a sense of belonging here. And it wasn't until a couple of decades later after I arrived that I realized that for all my efforts to feel like I belong, I had missed a basic and essential step in my arrival in Canada. I was at a conference opening where during the indig indigenous welcome, the person speaking to us described the land that we now call Vancouver. He talked about how his family 
hunted elk on what is now called Thurlow Street. He described the village of Sanak and went on to paint a beautiful and elaborate picture of the area that we call Metro Vancouver. And he ended by saying that what we have now is, is also beautiful, but he asked us to take a moment to absorb what he had talked about and to take into our hearts what was, what was here before. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized I had missed the very foundation of understanding that this land carries hi history and spirit and culture and the potential to evoke a more visceral type of knowing and belonging. Um, as trustees of the artifacts of culture and history, museums around the world are, are working to repatriate or appropriately honor the objects that they hold. Many have a sordid history of expropriation and outright theft, and some are seeking to, to right past wrongs. These artifacts are accompanied by a history, a story, or a myth, which helps to explain their significance and to complete the picture. Stories and indeed myths are complex, often evolving, evolving or incomplete, and they carry tremendous value in contributing to the documentation and the, the sorry to the documenting and preservation of culture and history. Some museums are working to create a more inclusive record of culture and incorporating the stories of the indigenous people or newcomers and other marginalized or minority groups. As museums become collectors of these stories, they should have an equally thoughtful intention to honor these words as they do their material uh, artifacts. We each tell our stories differently for different audiences and for different reasons. Stories are dynamic and evolving, and for many, telling stories is traumatic in itself. Think for a second about the credible fear interview that asylum seekers trying to get into the US from its southern borders face. They're responsible for sharing intimate details of their fear in order to make it credible enough to convince officials that, that they should not be returned to their home country. Stories can be informative and cathartic, but they can also be re-traumatizing and re reinforce power imbalances. We, not just museums, need to be mindful of whose stories we are collecting and why. We also need to consider the audiences for these stories. Who will have access, who will want access, and who should have access? So part of my work at SFU includes um, refugee and newcomer research and community-based programming, which involves working with settlement stakeholders to create welcoming communities for the newly arrived. The discussion about making our communities welcoming is not new, but we've largely ignored the fact that as settlers ourselves on unceded land, we really have little moral right to be welcoming people here without having the permission of and a partnership with the First Nations. We, the Museum of Vancouver, Equitas, and SFU are just starting our work to think about a program that I, that I hope will do three things. The first is to begin a dialogue with the the uh, three First Nations in Vancouver about their ways of welcome. And we're embarking on a journey to understand indigenous ways of welcome and to be inclusive in the welcome that we offer to newcomers. But more importantly, it'll give the right of welcoming to those who should have it. Nothing about us without us, as they say. The second is to provide refugees and newcomers access to the museum and the opportunity for a more complete historical and cultural understanding of Vancouver in Canada. More specifically, the aim is to provide access to the Aboriginal knowledge, history, and culture that the museum houses. Perhaps then others trying to become Canadian 
We'll start off on a stronger footing than I and many others that I know had. And the third is to spark a conversation directly between the First Nations in Vancouver and newcomers, a mutual sharing of histories and culture that remove as interlocutor in this exchange the dominant culture or settler as translator, inter interpreter, and mediator. It's the people in our society who shape our culture by creating new culture, so it's incumbent upon us all to consider the complexities of how to be more inclusive, inclusive and imaginative in how we hold and share space and artifacts, both material and stories. Often, sorry, only then will we capture the imagination of people with diverse histories, but shared struggle to find a place of common understanding and respect and above all, honor. Thank you. I really so appreciate about Shaheen's work, this delicate subtlety that she's navigating. Uh, so much of global migration is a result of colonialism and settler imperialism. Uh, so many people who've been displaced, who Shaheen is working with, have been displaced by similar power structures as what is supporting people to come here. And so it's a really subtle, nuanced, complex intersection. And I applaud you, Shaheen, for the way that you're facing those complexities head on. Marika Swan is an artist, a mother, and a community arts organizer. She is a mixed Tolokuit and Scottish and Irish person currently based in her home territory at Tolokuit, which is the area surrounding Tofino on what is now known as Vancouver Island. Marika is a lifelong friend of mine. We have much history. I'm so happy to be able to finally work with her in this capacity. Um, she's been doing a lot of work on her home territory in her own art making. And to that end, I would like to encourage you to check out her website because her work is absolutely phenomenally beautiful, marikaswan.com. Um, she's also been doing work in uh, a festival. She produces a festival of her own called Carving on the Edge, which is in Tofino, Nachanath territory, uh, the second weekend in September. September 8 through 10 is, I think, the dates this year? Six, six through nine. And uh, she's also been doing a, a project of archiving the works from her own nation that are being held in museums all over Turtle Island. She's been working on an archival project, collecting images of these works that have been taken, and then bringing those, only the images, not the pieces themselves, because they legally belong to the museum. She's been bringing these pieces of these stolen um, works and objects and belongings home in order for artists within her community to be able to reference the motifs, to be able to understand the aesthetics that have maybe become disconnected from their culture. And so it's really interesting work and I'm so happy to have you with us today, Marika Swan. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, it's a great treat to be in this space. Um, and I, it's kind of like an interesting blessing to take a pause and find the words to talk about the work that I've been doing. Um, I've been so lost kind of in the making and the doing and the figuring out of the project that I've been working on. And this is one of the first times that I've really had to think about 
um, speaking to that um, to a group of people. And it's actually really reassuring and wonderful to be in this panel and to hear these similar threads of a lot of the things that I'm figuring out and um, considering and battling with in my own work with contemporaries that are also trying to figure out um, spaces and ways to work with these institutions. Um, so I come from a place of, um, I would say, coming into this work, I'm, I'm definitely like an artist and a community arts organizer first. Um, my artistic practice is a huge source of my own healing, uh, my own spiritual practice, my connection to my ancestry, my family, a lot of that happens through my artwork and my study of my ancestral pieces um, in my community. And it's my personal care that I do for myself to help with the community arts work that I do. So um, like Laura was saying, one of the projects I work on um, is a carving festival in my home community, which on the outside is a celebration of the carving arts, but on the inside is a real project of trying to create space that is led by First Nations people, but open to the general public. And what does that look like? How can we build cultural bridges and spaces that um, allow these communities to meet and build relationship? And out of that project came a question of wanting to acknowledge the beautiful carving history in our area. Um, New Chanoth has an incredible carving history. We come from a rainforest. There's beautiful ancient trees that have inspired beautiful carvings for thousands and thousands of years. And we wanted a way to represent that in the space. And um, what I found is getting into that work, what has happened with our colonial history and um, you know through the oppression of our culture and the pressure to convert and the legalization of our cultural practices so much of the richness of our carving culture was like sold basically under duress and have ended up in all these different collections all over the world and through the kind of um, this like supremacy of science that we need to like examine things, we need to understand them in this very non-intimate way, um, pieces have been taken and are all over the world. And in Nuchanath area, like Nuchanath communities, the west coast of Vancouver Island, and I didn't really, really understand the scale of this, but as I've looked into it, there's probably close to a million objects from our area that are in different collections all over the world. And they kind of sit in these big depositories with very little information about what they're about or where they're from. Sometimes during the time that they were collected, there'll be like some basic information about what this work is describing, but really like no, hardly any context for um, the role that these incredible pieces played in our communities in terms of our governance, our spirituality, um, the basic like infrastructure and constitution of our people were expressed through these incredible treasures um, in our ceremonies. And, and yes, they were sold at one point. Someone made a choice often. Some, many things were stolen, but a lot of things were sold at a very like vulnerable time and a very oppressed time in our history. 
but they continue to be shown with very little consent from the communities that they are coming from. Um, sometimes there are uh, small pockets of people that have visited these museums to give some kind of context to um, where they're from, and museums will often like bring in some people to kind of talk about the pieces. For the most part, the community, original communities where these pieces are from have no say about what is shown about their communities or how that is talked about. And museums and science have this way of wanting to have this like one truth, this one story, this overarching truth about who these people were and what is the story of what happened. Um, but I find it really interesting in this time when, to me, there's like a big relationship to this other broader discussion we're having about um, consent. And what does it mean to have structures that have all this power and control and have this ability to control the narrative of how things are discussed and shown through their supposed ownership of that, but without going through the steps of like having a consensual relationship with the communities and cultures or where they're from. And I think we're really stuck in this, um, a sickness, a colonial sickness in the way that we think that we deserve access to things, that we deserve to know about things, that we deserve to kind of like peer in and look at and have information about things without having the intimacy of like a built relationship. That through relationships, if you are really curious about a community, a people, that you would go uh, maybe out of your own comfort zone potentially and build a relationship with those people and instead of in a kind of almost like zoo kind of way take objects out for your viewing pleasure of them because that's you deserve access to it instead going and building a relationship with those communities and and through a relationship that has a full picture of what that community looks like not just an exotification of their history or their beautiful artwork but understanding the living community the people the way of life the context the sharing of community and food and culture then have an equality of an exchange going back and forth so for me a lot of uh, my experiences going into these museums has been, and my interest is like basically in cultural revitalization in my community. I'm, I, I find it really, Jordan's work really interesting and what other curators are doing to try and shift the story within the museum, but my biggest goal is to support the cultural revitalization within our Nuchalnath communities. And how can we leverage access to the collections that exist um, out there in the world, all over Europe and the States and Canada, to support artists and culture keepers in our community and bringing back our culture and um, repairing kind of like that access to those items. Um, And, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought for a second there. Um, uh, and find and really pull back the way that those institutions function um, in the way that they've been built. And it's, I find, I really applaud Jordan and the work that they're doing to try and peel back kind of the way that those ins institutions have been built. Um, 
to create new ways for cultural sharing. Um, so within my community, what that's looked like so far, and this is something that I've, I, I began as a curiosity. I wanted to know what existed out there. And then I wanted my community to know what had survived is I've been going out and um, documenting all the pieces that I can find. Some museums are very forthright and wanting to share their collections. Some of them are really difficult and challenging to gain access to what they have. And um, I'm documenting all of these pieces and bringing them into the community and I try to make it as accessible and non-confrontational and try to remove as much of that institutional space because it can be very traumatizing to try and create, again, this, this community sharing. Um, and so what I often do is I take photographs and I'll arrange photographs according to themes together and I go into community events um, where they're having elders gatherings or lunches or youth gatherings and I put out photos to initiate kind of discussion to see if people um, recognize things, can identify things. I'm really paying attention to what pieces are of interest to my local community members. I'm most interested um, in supporting the work that culture keepers are doing that are actively creating carved pieces to be worn, to be used in potlatch and ceremony, and how can I support um, the learning and the passing down within families of uh, that tradition within the family. So knowing that, for example, if there's someone I know that makes headdresses for their family and they're teaching someone else in their community, how can I use these resources to support that learning within the intimacy of the community, the family, um, on that kind of level. So it's been a really hugely transformative experience for me. As Jordan mentioned too, I found the time spent um, looking through these collections with community members and having that connection has been so rich. And it leads me to really believe um, how much more value these pieces that aesthetically are really beautiful and enjoyed by museum visitors, how much more power and they have when they are positioned within their original communities. Um, and how much richness comes out when something is returned into its context. There is a new channel teaching that talks a lot about how uh, like science wants to like examine like a bird, for example, and we take the bird out of its context. What's the bird's behavior? How does a bird act? Whereas our Nochanoth perspective is that there's no removing the one object from its environment. It's like the whole context and the connectivity of the environment that changes the behavior of the bird. Our observation changes the bird. There's this, so when I see the objects so far removed from their place of power, you know, hoarded in these basements, it's a hugely emotional experience. And bringing those things back, even in the form of photographs into the community and watching the conversation, the richness, the stimulation of language return, of people remembering memories, sharing memories from their childhood within the community, it really begs me to ask the question, if we were to transform these institutions and we were to let go of that control of like that science and that hoarding behavior and allow these pieces to kind of go back to their original communities what would happen if you gave back that power to the to the people of that place 
where they could choose through consent what they wanted to share again back out into the community from a place of having things returned and hearing Jordan talk about um, the communities here because they have such closer access to the institution, how they've been able to access that space to offer what they want to share about their history. That's something that I really dream and want for um, my community as well.